Well, if someone says to you, I have good news and I have bad news, what do you want first? <laughs> Surveys show that the person sharing wants to share the good news first, but the person hearing wants the bad news first. Part of the reason is they just want to get it out of the way. They want to remove the element of worry. You can only enjoy good news so much when you know that there's bad news right behind it. But when you get the bad news out of the way, the good news is great. This morning, we're going to talk a little bit about the bad news and the good news as we're in our series, The Good News. And our big idea last week, Pastor Rashad did a fantastic job. I hope you heard it. If you didn't, go online, SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, find it. He talked about how the gospel is unique to Christianity. While there's many other religions in this world that teach many good things, only Christianity presents the good news of the gospel, and Christianity looks at Jesus differently than every other major world religion. And it is important that we note that, that not all religions are the same, but there are very different views on many different things, specifically who is Jesus and what did he accomplish for us. That was great. Make sure you hear that. This morning, as we're in week two of our six-week series called Good News, I want to talk to you about how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, it's good news, it's not good advice. It's good news, it's not good advice. Good advice is wonderful, but good news is better. And I actually think, in my experience of serving in a local church now for 20 plus years, that this is one of the greatest areas of misunderstanding about the Christian faith. Not just outside of the church, but even inside of the church. That So many people think that what it means to be a Christian is just to sort of plug yourself into the best advice possible, often found in the scriptures, and then do your darndest to live it out. And then when you don't, you tell God you're sorry, and he kind of hits the reset button. But what if there's actually something better than good advice? What if there's good news? I want us to look at a passage in Colossians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul, who was a man who wrote much of the New Testament and traveled much of the world back then, starting churches all over um, what would have been considered Asia Minor back then, Uh, he's writing to a church in Colossae and trying to teach them doctrine. Doctrine is simply what we believe about, about things, but specifically theological doctrine, what we believe about God. And I want us to see what he says here, beginning in verse 1 of Colossians 3. He says, if then you, now he's writing to Christians, he's writing to believers, okay? If then you have been raised with Christ, there is a positioning that happens when we place our faith and trust in Christ, we are positioned with him, and so we are raised with Christ, so we should seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I want to look at this verse just for one second. It it actually kind of sounds like an oxymoron. You died, and then he goes on to talk about your life. How can both be true? We're going to talk about that later. But you have died. If you've placed your faith in Christ, if you are a Christian, in a sense, you have died to who you used to be. And now your life, your new life, your greater life is hidden with Christ in God. Then when Christ, who is your life, appears, he's speaking of a future event when Christ returns or when we go to be with him. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly, sinful in you. And then he lists them off. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, or these, the wrath of God is coming. So this morning I want to talk to us about 
bad news, bad advice, good advice, and good news, and the difference between the four. The first thing I want us to see is that if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, then one of the things that you must do is you must believe the bad news. You have to believe the bad news. On April 15th, 1912, over 1,500 people died when the Titanic sank. That was over two-thirds of the amount of people on the ship. There was about 700 survivors. And of the 700 survivors, several of them wrote books about their experience. And we can still read those. We still have those. The first one was written about two months, published about two months after this tragedy by a guy named Lawrence Beasley. He was a 28-year-old science teacher who had graduated from Oxford College. And in his book, he tries to explain why people acted the way they did even after the ship struck the iceberg. Now, you have to realize that nobody thought this ship could be sunk. In fact, somebody famously said, God himself cannot sink the Titanic. And the tragedy of what happened, the amount of people that died was unnecessary. The ship was going to sink no matter what. They couldn't save it. But the amount of people that died, it didn't need to be that many people. And so the big question circling the societies at that time was, how did, how did we lose 1,500 people when there was enough space in the lifeboats, not for everybody, but for more than 700? And in chapter 4 of his book, he says, what you will never understand if you weren't on the ship is what it felt like to be on the deck after the ship struck the iceberg. And this is what he says. I'm going to read to you from the book. He says, it was a perfectly still atmosphere. He's saying it was peaceful. There was no chaos It was a brilliant night. The ship had come to rest, but there was no indication of disaster. There was no visible iceberg. There was no hole in the ship's side through the water, or none of us could know that there was a hole in the side of the ship through which water was pouring in. There was nothing that seemed broken. Nothing seemed out of place. There was no alarm, no sound of alarm, no panic, no movement of anyone except at a walking, normal pace. The absence of any knowledge of the nature of the accident, no one knew the extent of the damage, and no one knew the danger of the ship sinking in a few hours. And what I think he's saying is is that what made the tragedy of the Titanic sinking so much worse is that nobody realized how bad the news was. Nobody believed the bad news. And as Christians, if we're going to have a full appreciation of the good news of the gospel, we have to understand the bad news first. And in our text this morning, Paul gives two phrases that hint at what the bad news is. And the first phrase is this, where he says, put to death what is earthly in you. What's earthly? And he's, listen, he's not writing to unchurched non-Christians. He's writing to you and me. He's saying there are things in you that are earthly, things in you that you still struggle with. Battles that you still face, temptations that you still deal with. There's something wrong with you, is what he's saying. And John Mayer has a song called Split Screen Sadness. And in this song, one of my favorite lyrics, he says, I can't wait to figure out what's wrong with me so I can say this is the way that I used to be. (laughs) Anybody relate to that? I can't wait to figure out what's wrong with me so that I can say someday that this is the way I used to be. Anyone still feel like that in your life someday? Can't wait to figure out what's wrong with me. 
So someday I can say it's who I was once, but I'm not anymore. See, all of us are looking for explanations for the way we are. Why do we have the same? Why do we have these weaknesses? Why do we have these struggles? Why can't we overcome certain things? Why do we keep doing the same dumb things over and over? What's the explanation? And the sociologists and psychologists would say, well, they're the contributing factors. It's the debate between nature and nurture, who you are sort of by family and by birth, but nurture who you were raised to be. And of course, while both of those things have tremendous contributions to the person that you are today, your nature and your nurture, the Bible's explanation for why there's something earthly in you and something earthly in me, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where God creates a perfect world with people that are going to bear his image perfectly and extend his reign and rule throughout creation and do some beautiful things together. And then we get to chapter 3, and Adam, who is our representative at that time, rebels and sins against God. And as our representative, he gets us into this thing that the Bible calls a sin nature, that all of us are born with a sin nature. And the joke is this. If you don't believe in sin nature, go take a shift in the church nursery. (laughs) You will be a believer in sin nature in about 45 minutes. No one teaches kids to say mine. No parent has ever intentionally, I don't hope not, taught their kids to chuck toys at other kids, right? And yet these things happen. We have amazing nursery workers. God bless them. (laughs) The sin nature, or some theologians call the total depravity, this idea that we're born with this nature. And I know, like, you kind of want to shake your fist at Adam, but I'm not sure any of us would have done any better. And the good news of the scripture is is that Jesus actually has a, a nickname, so to speak, in the New Testament. They call him the second Adam. And what it means is that just as one Adam, as our representative, got us into this, Jesus, the second Adam, our representative, gets us out of it. So there is good news even in this. And yet there is bad news. And the bad news is is that there's something within us that doesn't want to be told what to do, ever. Doesn't want to be told we're wrong. Doesn't want to be contradicted. Doesn't want to be inconvenienced. Doesn't want discomfort brought to us by somebody else's choices. It's in us, and it's in us from birth. And we don't grow out of it, and we don't educate ourselves out of it, And we don't work our way out of it. There's something earthly in us. This is the bad news. The second phrase here is this. The wrath of God is coming. Now, that's really great Sunday morning news, isn't it? The wrath of God is coming. It sounds pretty ominous. Like, dun, dun, dun. The wrath of God is coming. This is a problem for many people. And I understand this problem. Because we're told God is love. And he loves us. And then we read a verse like this, and we say, hold on. How can God be both loving and wrathful? How do those two things work together? I'm reading a book right now by David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist. And the book is called How to Know a Person. It's the art of seeing others deeply and being deeply seen. Actually, fantastic book. And in it, uh, he says this. He quotes a guy named George Bernard Shaw. And I want you to see this. I think it will be on the screen. George says that the worst sin towards someone else is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. To do that is to say, you don't matter. You don't exist. You're not even worth my anger. You're not even worth my wrath. Opposite of love is not wrath. Think about it this way. Who do you love most? What do you love most? And then how would you respond when the object of your love was being attacked by something or someone else? 
Would you claim indifference? I don't really care. Go ahead and do it because I'm such a loving person. I'm just going to sit back and, no, what would you do? Wrath. Wrath, right? Wrath in itself is not evil or wrong. It's God's wrath poured out towards sin and the consequences of sin. So think about this. God loves us infinitely. So how is he supposed to respond when we choose sin that destroys us completely? Should he wash his hands of us? Should he sit back? Would that make him a more loving God if he didn't care about the sin in our lives? Of course not. And so the wrath of God is, is coming. And that is bad news because no one wants to be on the other side of God's wrath. But God must respond. To not respond would be unloving. And here we have the bad news. So the bad news is there's something earthly in you and me. We didn't work it up. You know, the saying is this. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's in our nature. It flows out of who we are without Christ. So there's something earthly in us. But then secondly, the wrath of God is coming. Bad news. And we have to believe it. We have to believe it. Second thing is the bad advice. What do we do with the bad advice? Because there's like, how do we deal with this, right? What do we do? And there is bad advice out there. And what, what we have to learn to do is we have to reject the bad advice. We have to reject it. Bad advice is often just the inverse of good advice. So good advice is uh, eat healthy, stay active, right? Pretty simple. So bad advice, be a couch potato and just shove ho-hos and Twinkies into your mouth as you Netflix binge, right? Good advice is control your spending and use a budget. And you guys ever heard of a budget? Use a budget and prepare for the future. And bad advice is uh, just buy whatever your heart wants and just, you know, I mean, Amazon Prime, it'll be on your door tomorrow uh, go ahead and, and do it. Good advice, uh, choose your friends wisely. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Bad advice, um, just spend time with people who drag you down, who don't share any of your values and appreciate who you are. So bad advice, it's not so much that it's hard to see often, but it's, it's sometimes it's hard to avoid. And there's no bad advice in this passage per se. In fact, there's some really good advice in this passage. But if we look at some of the things that Paul instructs us to do as good advice, and then we look at the inverse of them, we have bad advice. So let me give you three quick examples. Number one, he says, seek the things that are above. So what would be the inverse of that? Seek the things that are below. And below doesn't mean below us, like below means on earth. Temporary things that, that will not last, that cannot satisfy, that will enslave us. And this word in the, in the Greek, this word seek, it, it speaks of a continual chasing after and it's my conviction that everybody in life is continually chasing after something. Some people are chasing after the approval of another person. You didn't find it in your parents. You chase it in a spouse. It doesn't work out there. You chase it from your boss. Some people are always chasing after approval. Some people are always chasing after power. And they get it by doing terrible things to other people or making themselves feel important through their jobs and their status and their title. Some people are chasing after security. Some people are chasing after pleasure, comfort. Whatever it is, we're seeking after things. Every heart is a seeking heart. That's the way we were created. And so the bad advice here is to seek the things of this world, to think that they will somehow satisfy us if we get them and forgive us if we fail them, and they can't do either. And history and time has shown that, and Scripture teaches that as well. And then in Matthew 6.33, which was my dad's life verse and is a really important verse in our church's history, that's why that cafe, by the way, that Jeremiah mentioned is named Cafe 6.33 after Matthew 6.33. Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. Righteousness meaning his right ways. And then all these things will be added to you. Now, can I tell you what that verse doesn't mean? It doesn't mean that if you make God number one, he will give you your two through ten. That's not what it means. Here's what it means. It means if you make God your number one, he will, get to, he will define what your two through ten is. So all these things, it's not like if I serve God, I will be healthy, wealthy, um, and happy. What it means is if you will seek God's kingdom first, it's so formative and powerful that all the things that he gives you along with the kingdom will end up being the things that you want the most anyway. His peace, his strength, the ability to love your enemy, pray for those who are against you. But if we seek the things that are below, bad advice. Second thing that Paul says here is to set your mind on the things that are above. So the inverse would be, again, to set your mind on the things that are below. All of your thinking is about temporary things. You're obsessed and consumed with thinking about more stuff and more experiences and more opportunities. And your whole life is arranged in such a way that you are always thinking about things that will not last, things that are below. And the ways of this world begin to shape your thinking, too. Shape your thinking in such a way that whatever society says is you just say it must be. Uh, you begin to embody the values of this world, but the values of this world are, are the, often the opposite of the values of God's kingdom. If you want to know what the values of God's kingdom are, go to Matthew chapter 5 and read the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Well, he doesn't say blessed are the powerful and blessed are the strong and blessed are the affluent and blessed are the gifted. He says blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who know how to suffer and sorrow. Blessed are those who are poor, poor in spirit, which simply means blessed are those who know how much they need God. It's a totally different set of values. And if our mind's thinking is always shaped by what this world is saying and promoting, and please don't fall into the trap that not, something's always being preached to you. Every show you watch, every movie you watch, every song you listen to, every conversation you hear, there's always something being said saying, think this way, think this way, think this way. That's bad advice. And then lastly, bad advice, he said, put to death what is earthly in you. So this is the way I said it, even though it's clunky. It's bad advice to let live what is earthly in you. To put to death what is earthly in you. Is anyone else struck by the violence of that phrase? And what Paul is saying is it's really bad advice to someone to say, just get comfortable with your sin. It's okay. Um, make friends with it. Make peace with it. We're not to make peace with the earthly things within us. We are, according to Scripture, to put them to death. Now, that requires some work on our end. John Owen famously said, Christians, you have to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In other words, you put earthly things to death or they will put you to death. They will cost you that much. And so what does it look like to, to, to let live what is earthly in you? It's just sort of an acceptance of like, it would sound like this. This is just my weakness and it's okay. It's just who I am. This is my heritage and everyone like me is like this. And everyone in my family's history struggled with this. And so, and I, listen, I understand that there are things that are passed down and that there are real struggles that are, that are part of your, your nurturing and where you can't, I'm not, I'm not making light of that. At the same time, to put to death what is earthly in you is to not let that become a predominant excuse for not dealing with the stuff in your heart, right? Dealing with the stuff in your life. We don't do this in our own strength. We do this in God's grace, of course. There's grace for this, but there is a response. So we reject bad advice. All right. I mean, I think that's 
probably the obvious point, right? You don't, you know, if you come to church, you expect to hear reject bad advice. That makes sense. But let's talk about the good advice. So what do we do with the good advice? Do we, do we just switch from bad advice to good advice and then we're a Christian? Stop lying, tell the truth, don't steal, be generous, don't be mean, be kind, don't commit sexual sin, be pure, don't hate, be loving. Is that all it is, is to turn from bad behavior to good behavior, from bad advice to good advice? Is that enough? Is that what it means to be a Christian? And, and, and for many people, that's sort of what they think it is. And so, actually, I know that there are a lot of people who have left the church and left the Christian faith, and as they walk out the door, the last thing that they say in their heart is this, I can't do it. I just can't do it. There's so many rules and expectations. There's so much advice, and I, I, I can't do it. And they feel like the phrase, I can't do it, is the end of following Jesus, when in fact, it's the beginning of following Jesus. Until you realize you can't do it, you're never going to look to Jesus to save you. You're just going to look to him as an example, not a savior. And he didn't come to earth primarily to be our example. He came primarily to earth to be our substitutes, our savior. It's not enough just to obey good advice. There's actually a little passage right before our passage that I want to show you where Paul says this. Colossians 2, verse 20. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? He's talking about good advice, rules, laws, things that people are saying, hey, real Christians do this. And, and then verse 21, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I don't want to go too in-depth because it would take too much time, but there were certain gray areas then, and there are still gray areas today. We, we might call these areas of Christian liberty or Christian conscience, where one Christian might feel free to participate in a certain activity or do certain things, and other Christians would say, it's not for me, and that's okay. There, not everything is black and white. There is some gray area because Paul writes about this a lot, and what he's saying is, is that in those gray areas, do not let somebody put on you rules and regulations and good advice that if you follow them, you will somehow be more saved than other Christians. There's no such thing as more saved than other Christians. You're in Christ or you're not in Christ. And so then he goes on to say, let me skip to verse 23. He said, these, these meaning good advice, rules, and regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. They indeed, uh, they have an appearance of wisdom, which means it sounds good, sounds wise, it'll preach. And it will promote self-made religion, which means it will promote you to be your own savior. Asceticism, which is like a denial of yourself of, of good pleasures, and severity to the body, which is even like sort of a self-flagellation, self-punishment sort of approach to trying to be more like Jesus. But, and this is a big one, but those things are of no value in actually stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I know this is a confusing passage. Here's what I think Paul is saying. Good advice might change your behavior, but it will never change your heart. Good advice might change the way you live, but it will not change who you love. And what our hearts need most is not more good advice, although we should consider the good advice because Scripture is filled with good advice. And there are things that we should consider and ask the Spirit of God, is this good advice for me? Should I follow in this path? But we must not put our hope in our ability to follow good advice. We put our hope in the certainty of the good news of Jesus Christ. Good advice can be found in any religion and any worldview, but the good news of the gospel is uniquely Christian. 
Good advice is about what you must do. Here's a list of things that you must do. Now go ahead and follow through on it. But good news is about what has been done for you. And the word gospel literally means good news. It is a declaration of what Jesus did for you. It is not primarily a list of things that you must do. Good advice also makes you the source of your own salvation. Because if it's all about good advice, then as long as you follow it as well as you possibly can, then you have contributed to your salvation. And you know what I've learned over the years? That what that will actually do is it will rob you of the gratitude that you should have towards God. Because if you think God did 50% and you did 50%, then you only have to give him 50% because you did your part. But if it's all grace and if it's all God, then there's nothing he can't ask of us. There's no desire that he can't say, trust me with it. Lay it down. None of that. Why? Because it's good news. All the grace of God. So we consider the good advice, but we do not look to it for our salvation. All right, so let me finish. We believe the bad news. We reject the bad advice. We must consider the good advice. But then lastly, we trust the good news. I'm going to ask Pastor Antonia to join me. We trust the good news. What is the good news of the gospel? The good news of the gospel, one of the simplest ways to say it is this, that Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus, he accomplished for you what you could never have accomplished for yourself. That he did what you couldn't do. He lived the life that you and I owed to God, but we never with a thousand million opportunities could have done. We always would have got it wrong. Why? Because there's something earthly in me. And the wrath of God was coming from me. And yet Jesus Christ takes my place and he lives the life that I should have lived. He dies the death that I should have died. And then Jesus, as we'll celebrate in four weeks, he rose from the dead on the third day, conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. And when Jesus walked out of his tomb on Resurrection Sunday morning, it meant that every person who trusts and follows in him will someday walk out of their own tomb. And death, which was our greatest enemy, can no longer end us. It can now only escort us, <laughs> escort us to Jesus. The good news is who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. And as Christians, here's what we do. We trust in Jesus, which simply means this. We build our life on him. We build our life on him. I want to finish by just saying, when we look at this passage, the good news says two very important things. Something about our past, something about our future. Verse 3. This was the verse we read earlier that seemed like an oxymoron. For you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ or with Christ in God. So we actually, there's a death when we are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. We die to who we were. The Bible calls that the old man, the old woman, the old flesh. There is a actual death to who we were. But our life now is not our own anymore. It's hidden with Christ in God. Our lives have been hidden with Christ, and they remain that way. And because we are in Christ, and Christ is in God, we are inseparable and secure. Listen to this. Here's what it means. His fullness, the fullness of Jesus has passed into your emptiness. His righteousness is transferred to your account where there used to only be sinfulness. And his life now takes the place of your death. His fullness for your emptiness, his righteousness for your sinfulness and wickedness, and his life for your death. He deals with our past. But also there's a promise of the future. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. See, friends, 
Right now, if you're a Christian, your life is hidden in Christ. But when he is revealed at his coming, at his return, in his glorious body, we will also be revealed and we will have bodies like his. When you see Jesus, you will become fully you for the first time ever. And you'll be just like him. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. We may be here, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, I want some of you just to grab onto this promise because you need it right now, will transform our lowly body, our lowly body. You okay with me calling your body lowly? Our, our lowly body to be what? Like his glorious body. Whatever sicknesses you're dealing with, whatever aches and sores and, and struggles and insecurities and inconsistencies and problems and regret, and pain, someday your lowly body will be transformed into a glorious body because your life is hidden with Christ in God. Then we will be revealed. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let me finish. The good news reveals a God who's worked in our past for our good. He's working in our future to secure a home for us. And he's currently in our present moments walking with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he is with me. John Stott says it this way. The gospel is not good advice to people, but it's the good news about Jesus. It's not an invitation to us to do anything, but it's a declaration of what God has done. It's not a demand. It's an offer. And it's the greatest offer ever. And that's why Jesus said, if you're tired and you're weary and you're worn out and you're exhausted, and aren't we all at different times, come to me and find rest. Receive the good news of who I am and what I've done. And we trust in the gospel. Let's pray together this morning.